Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to this special live recording of the Seneca Podcast, a discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Sup China is a great way to stay on top of China news in a few minutes a day with a daily email newsletter, a mobile phone app, and at the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We're coming to you today from the Little Park Restaurant at the Smith Hotel in Tribeca. I am Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by my good friend Jeremy Goldcorn. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing very well indeed, Kaiser. And it's really great to see uh, so many old friends uh, in our audience and uh, some new ones, too. So let's jump right in. Um, these are times that try nations' souls. Here in the United States, a country to which you, Jeremy, just recently immigrated and to which I only a month ago repatriated after 20 years in China, we are watching right now on tenterhooks as America wrestles with the aftermath of killings of African-American men by policemen in Louisiana and in Minnesota and then of police officers in Dallas. Uh, demagogues are feeding off the festering distrust and the enemy that seizes our country. They're fanning racial and ethnic, religious, and even international tensions right now. And that is not just happening here in the U.S. The Brexit is just the latest instance, and it looks to some like to, you know, part of a general revolt against globalization, against the rule of Davos man against the neoliberal order of the post-Cold War period. Both major American political parties have back, backed off in their recent uh, platforms from uh, trade, from support of free trade, which they both used to embrace. Apparently, this is in response to uh, shifting voter sentiment. And there are, generally speaking, cracks now in what's been called the Washington Consensus. Nativism is rearing its ugly head in many nations of the world. And amidst all of this, uh, of course, uh, perhaps the biggest uh, beneficiary of globalization is China, uh, but it's also probably the country that has suffered the worst ravages of uh, economic growth and globalization from environmental degradation uh, to rising and very extreme income inequality. And nativism is also something going on in China, too. I mean, just this week, Beijing has been seething after the verdict in the uh, Hague Tribunal, which I'm sure everybody's aware of. Next year, we have, uh, later this year, we have the U.S. election, uh, a party congress in Beijing early next year. And, of course, the EU is uh, in flux after Britain's referendum. So the shape of the international order, if there is even one left... Uh, is very uncertain, and the coming year is looking like it might be a major inflection point. 
Indeed. So today we are putting the band back together, as it were, and chatting with two people who were early on uh, regulars on Seneca before they themselves left China. First up, immediately to my right, is Mary Kay Magistad. After a long and very successful career reporting from China and elsewhere for in, in Asia for NPR and for PRI, Mary Kay came back to the U.S. in 2013 and is now based in San Francisco. And for the last year, she has been producing one of my very, very favorite podcasts, one that I highly recommend that you listen to if you aren't already. It's called Whose Century Is It? Whose Century Is It? is a deliberately provocative question and one framed in in Mary Kay's podcast against the backdrop of China's rise. But it isn't by any means just a show about China. So who better than Mary Kay to join us as we pose that same question? Whose century is it? She's been, like I said, a guest on Seneca many, many times and has even actually hosted the show uh, once. So we're delighted to have her here for this special live show, and we are grateful to her for lending us the name of her show in one of those crossovers where Laverne and Shirley show up on Happy Days. <laughs> we, we're also delighted to be joined by uh, Gadi Epstein sitting to my left, uh, who's a also a veteran foreign correspondent from Beijing. Uh, he was initially there with the Baltimore Sun and then with Forbes and most recently The Economist. And he returned to the U.S. to cover media for The Economist uh, in the United States. Um, Gadi is also, for obsessive uh, viewers of a TV series called The Wire, <laughs> as a, a minor star in which episode was it? Minor? I wouldn't remember. Maybe season five, episode nine, about 20 minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> and you were on screen for about three seconds, right? Two. Two, Two seconds. <laughs> anyway, welcome, Gadi. It's great to have yeah. you back. Uh, thank you. Um, it, it's good to be back. Um, I think I was on your... I don't know, second or third podcast ever, and from then for a while. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's good to make a return um, here on U.S. soil. And, Kaiser, may I commend you for your opening introduction about the U.S. and Britain, which I think just lightly edited, just lightly edited could, have, uh, could have been on CCTV Dialogue with Young Roy. No editing necessary <laughs> at all. Um, so we're going to chat for about 30 minutes, and uh, then we're going to ask the audience to come up for, for questions. There's a microphone on, on this stool in front of us here. I ask that you speak directly into that microphone because uh, your voice is going to be preserved uh, for posterity, as it were. Okay, so let's start with Mary Kay, and I'm going to hand you the microphone as soon as I'm done here. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard your podcast, tell us what you've set out to do with us, and, and tell us where you are now. I mean, 16 years now into the century and a couple of dozen episodes into your podcast, into your quest to figure out whose century is it, are you actually any closer to an answer? Right. Well, the short answer is I don't think we can be closer to an answer 16 years into a century. When I started the podcast, my very first episode questions the question. It questions the premise that a century belongs to a nation state or needs to belong to a nation state. Um, it even questions why we're looking at the unit of time of a century, because in different cultures, different units of time matter. And that's the point. I mean, depending on where you sit in the world and depending on what you're paying attention to, you could come up with any number of narratives about whose century it is, about what the ideas, trends, and twists are that are shaping the century. And so what I'm trying to do in the podcast is to travel around outside of the States, as well as within the U.S., and look from different perspectives at what matters, what seems to be having an outsized impact now that could shape the future going forward, be it for several years or several decades, possibly even longer, 
we can't know sitting here. If it were 1916, what would we have guessed that the century would be like? Almost certainly we would have been wrong in most ways, possibly right in others. But I still think it's worth going through the exercise and thinking about, you know, what should we be paying attention to? And um, can I ask both of you, Gadi and, and Mary Kay, um, when you are talking to people, and I know, Gadi, you're not covering China now, you're covering media, but still, is it a, a, uh, are we seeing people discussing China and America? Is that the dominant narrative? You mean when bringing up foreign policy or just in general in the, converse, in the like, conversation? In the conversation about who is going to dominate the globe. I just feel like those conversations aren't happening outside of people who are... Um, who are looking at China and America uh, as part of their kind of part of their worldview or their work? I mean, we're dominated by the by the election season here, and so every conversation is about Donald Trump. And within that context, you know, I think people uh, recognize that Trump has had a slight obsession with China, amongst other or China, uh, amongst other <laughs> China, things. China, 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 and so China, China. I, th I think there is a general sense. Um, to answer your question. In general, I think there's an accepted or received wisdom that China is rising, and it hasn't, that hasn't really been questioned. And any sort of counter-narratives that China might be on the way to a collapse or heading for trouble or demographic slowdown, those haven't penetrated into the zeitgeist. I think the, that narrative that has been in place since the post-2008 recovery, uh, I think that is the one that's to me, is still salient for your average kind of American. Yeah, still salient here, but I think, you know, in, in Asia, like I was just in India and Southeast Asia, and I think there it's shifting um, and has been shifting over the last five years where people are starting to imagine an Asia in this century that's multipolar, um, where China is certainly important, but Southeast Asia is too, and so is India. And in terms of, you know, kind of what the balance is over time, that that will probably shift but that it won't just be one major power in Asia that matters. And, you know, that is a narrative that, you know, Americans might want to think a little more deeply about. So, I mean, not long ago, one heard it regularly asserted that the, the 21st century was to be China's century, or at least a Pacific century. What would a Chinese century look like? I mean, what does China actually want out of, out, out of this century, Mary Kay? I, I, one runs across this idea... Martin Jake's When China Rules the World uh, comes to mind, that, that China really wants to resurrect or that it will sort of automatically resurrect the old imperial tribute system with this Confucian empire that sets, sits at the center of a universal global empire. Is, is this your sense at all for what China actually wants out of the century or does, does China have designs on the century itself? Yeah, well, so I think we've all heard in China over the course of the time that we were there, 10, 15, 20 years, depending on which of us you're talking about. Um, you know, I, I was there on both sides of the turn of the century and was hearing this will be the Chinese century, this will be the Asian century. And, you know, when we're saying China, you know, we're using that as shorthand for the Chinese government mostly, although Chinese people in general certainly would like to see the country prosper and be strong in the world and, you know, be something that they can be proud of, be a country that's respected and admired. Um, I think there's a, a second set of aspirations that particularly China's leaders and the Communist Party hold and some other, some people within the Chinese population, but not all. And that is that 
that China becomes the preeminent power in the world and that this is inevitable and it's the right thing that China suffered 100 years of humiliation at the hands of foreign powers and that was an aberration and now it's time to correct that aberration. Now is China's time. And if there's ever something that gets in the way of that, like a ruling in The Hague that China building artificial islands in the South China Sea breaks international law, the, the re reaction from the Chinese government is, well, we don't recognize your authority to tell us what to do in any way. You're trying to contain China. You're trying to stop what should rightfully be happening. Mary Kay, you, you've spent a lot of time reporting in um, Southeast Asia. And if you follow Martin Jakes's argument about uh, you know, China as a civilization state that had these tributary states, I mean, some of the, many of those were in Southeast Asia. But attitudes in Southeast Asia to China are varied and, uh, shall we say, interesting. Uh, would you care to comment on sure. current attitudes across uh, Southeast Asia to China? Sure. So I lived in Southeast Asia from 1988 to 1995. I was based in Thailand, but I covered the whole region. And at that time, there was still a lot of anxiety about China. There were still fresh memories of how the Chinese Communist Party had funded communist insurgencies in almost every Southeast Asian country, and that had led to a lot of loss of life and just basic chaos. And so people were looking at China as it came out of the Tiananmen crackdown, and they're like, okay, now what? Um, and they see more opening up and more opportunity, and they start venturing in and thinking, well, this is, this is okay, we can do this. So then over the course of the next decade, um, and even 15 years, there was this opening, this warming. I did a, a series, I think it was about a decade ago, looking at how traditional U.S. allies in the region were reacting to China's rise. And you know, I went to Thailand and the Philippines, and South Korea and Japan. And aside from Japan, the other three were like, hey, look, you know, the U.S. is focused on terrorism. We're, you know, we, we, we really like this idea that, you know, China's talking about a peaceful rise and the prosperity is going to um, trickle down to all of us. That's great. Well, you know, fast forward five years from there, 2010, and you've got, you know, Yang Jiatur, the Chinese foreign minister, saying we're a big country and you're small countries and that's just the way it is. Um, you know, maybe it's not the tributary system, but it is saying, you know, we've got more muscle than you do, and we are going to look after our interests in this region, and you better come along, because we have ways of making you come along. And, you know, the reaction is, okay, then let's consider our options, and let's balance, um, you know, the superpowers that are, you know, at play in this region, and, you know, maybe we can make this work for our long-term interests. And, and I think that's what's, that speaks to what China does want in this century, um, Maybe not so much to be the preeminent power in the world, which is not necessarily as realistic, uh, but to be the preeminent power in the region, uh, to get what it wants in the region, uh, to write the rules for Asia. Um, and just like as in a previous century, um, America extended its influence regionally with the Monroe Doctrine, I think China feels it's its, it's, its right, to, at least the Communist Party does, to do so. And so that, that's where I see it. It's more of a, um, an assertion of power regionally. Gadi, uh, to you, um, we've watched, I, I hope, in some horror uh, as the rise of nativism around the world has been happening, uh, of course, in China as well, as, you know, with the rise of Trumpism and maybe uh, some people would say with the Brexit vote, uh, anti-immigrant and anti-refugee sentiment sweeping uh, parts of Europe. Um, more than any of the other great powers in the world, I think that we can fairly say that the United States and Great Britain have carried the torch for the Enlightenment project. 
this idea that we want to see pluralistic politics, we want to see the respect for human rights, uh, and we want to see this, you know, uh, reach the kind of holdout authoritarian countries of the world today. How is this uh, impacting our ability to do this? I mean, when we're seeing, you know, Trumpism rising, I'm sure we've, uh, I know that Jeremy and I have experienced this, uh, the difficulties in, in facing some of our Chinese friends who are, are very critical of American-style democracy uh, when we, when we are, are confronting Trump in America itself. Or uh, you saw all the schadenfreude in China over the Brexit vote, right? Yeah, it's always an e- easy propaganda score um, to look at the kind of s- the own goals that uh, America's politics or British politics produce. I might uh, slightly contend or contest your premise in terms of who uh, is carrying the torch globally. I mean, there's the UN, um, as I think quite a multinational, uh, certainly European um, interest in promoting human rights globally and in promoting certain sort of standards. Uh, and I think the U.S. hasn't been as, you know, clearly as uniformly committed to that in its foreign policy. Uh, and I think that message has, has gotten through from, from the UN and from European powers um, over the last know, 15, 20 years, uh, where maybe the U.S. has kind of fallen down on that. Uh, so, you know, I, that doesn't directly address your question. I do think uh, that when you have uh, things like the rise of Trumpism and, um, and the nasty politics in Britain, it does, it does deliver, um, like I said, a kind of a propaganda coup. Uh, unfortunately, it isn't, I mean, it, it isn't the whole story um, of democracy. And I think there are shining examples of democracy in Europe, in Northern Europe, um, and and in Asia, uh, that I think send um, a more hopeful, um, I think a more hopeful signal to uh, to people who have who live under authoritarian governments. Very well put. Thanks. Um, so, you know, I'm, I first moved to Beijing in 1995, and um, I, my first job, I was involved in this factory that was desperately trying to get. Uh, what was it called, ISO 9000 or something? 9000 and something certification. It was kind of a quality control certification. Um, China was uh, very interested in getting into WTO. Uh, there was this tremendous fever to host the Olympics. Um, any um, signal of China being an accepted part of the global order was greeted with great celebration in the Chinese state press and pride by Chinese citizens. This year does seem to be, I mean, the, the business with the Hague Tribunal seems to be, to mark a kind of, you know, at least it's a, a sea change, or maybe it's not, um, in, in, in China's attitude towards global organizations. Mary Kay and, and Gadi, do you, do you think we've reached the end of China's interest in being a player in global organizations? You know, some, something of a checks it. Is, is that what's going on? Well, I think it's way too early to say. Um, I think the Chinese government has proven itself over time to be very pragmatic. So if there are international organizations through which China can promote its own interests and try to shape regulations um, and find ways to cooperate um, that also serve its long-term interests, it'll do that. Um, I think in this particular case, uh, it's not, you know, it certainly signaled that it's not going to honor the, the decision of the court. Um, but then what does it do instead of honoring the decision of the court? And there, too, I think China's pretty pragmatic. I don't think anyone wants a war. 
the Chinese government or the U.S. government. Um, and up until now and for several years, there's been this game of how far can we push the limit where it's still you know, not, it doesn't rise to the level where the U.S. feels that it really needs to respond in any significant way. Yeah, I would say no to Chexit. Nice term, though. I don't think China wants to withdraw from the international order in any way. Uh, I, I see China similarly as both pragmatic and opportunistic. Uh, they will take what they can get uh, out of the international order and out of their region. Uh, and when challenged, uh, they will kind of assess the situation and see uh, where they might have to sort of uh, cool things down. Uh, you know, you see in the response to this tribunal state tribunal decision, they haven't exa- there haven't been protests in the streets. That's something that China can, the government can kind of turn off or on. That's a spigot they can turn off or on. Clearly, they're not turning that on, and they're keeping it, they're, they're quite actively keeping it off. I think that the response has been quite measured. Uh, and I think you'll see maybe in the months ahead, uh, they'll probably figure out what, how they will interact with their, you know, with their neighbors recognizing that they have this, you know, tribunal decision in hand, uh, even though China won't, uh, won't accept it. And they've, since they've signaled from the beginning of this process that they never were going to accept this decision. They weren't participating in the process. Uh, instead, they were doing island reclamations to establish new facts on the ground. And, and so I've always considered this to be something where we were going to get to this stage. What was somewhat surprising was how explicit and detailed uh, the ruling was um, against China on almost all, all, on almost all points. Uh, and that is something I think they will have to contend with in, in international negotiations. Uh, but they won't, I don't think they were go- they're going to ever say that this decision stands as law. They're never going to accept, they're never going to say that publicly. I agree with everything you just said, except if the decision had gone their way, they would have not only accepted it, they would have pointed to it as, and now everyone else has to abide by this because it's international. I don't think anyone expected, I mean... No one within China expected the decision to go their way. Uh, everybody knew it wasn't going to go their way. I, I, th- I think that was pretty clear, and it has been clear uh, for, for a couple of years since the beginning of the process. Okay, I, I'm Gotti, Mary Kay, both of you. Um, if you were to have the ear of the American president, um, what sort of advice would you give her regarding American strategy? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what, what sort of advice would you give her regarding American strategy toward China? I mean, it's rare that one sits in a, any kind of a discussion about China where the name of, an, uh, of, of the Greek historian of the Peloponnesian War isn't invoked and we talk about the Thucydides trap. Uh, what can America be doing to better avoid the so-called Thucydides trap? Not a lot more than they're doing. I mean, to, to the degree that they can do a little bit more, they could be more aggressive, uh, especially now after this ruling, with uh, freedom of navigation operations uh, in the South China Sea and make clear that they are going to abide by what they see as international law uh, and uh, regardless of what of what China thinks Uh, and I think uh, I would probably I mean I'd I'd try to get uh, the the law of the sea ratified but that's sort of a a political issue that's beyond the president's um, ability to implement uh, that requires the Senate uh, and I would, uh, and I think, you know, the, the administration already uh, ha- calls upon China uh, to recognize um, the interests of all the parties in the region. They do what they can to sort of pressure China to kind of back off with its activities in the region, with its aggressive activities in the region. But there's a limit. There's a realistic limit, a pragmatic limit to what the U.S. can do. And they don't want to start a war either. And so I don't think... I don't know that there's much beyond what I just said there. And there's not too many options in, 
that they have at their disposal. You're not going to go to the next level up is sanctions, and I don't. There's no one's going to no one's going to put that on the table. So you know, all good advice, and and the only other thing I'd add is you know Hillary Clinton has a lot of experience dealing with China already as Secretary of State. And the only thing that I think she could do, well, at least one significant thing I think she could do differently than she did in her early days as Secretary of State is um, stand more firmly for U.S. interests when dealing with China. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which the U.S. and China cooperate at many different levels. There are dozens of different dialogues going on all the time, and all that is to the good. But I don't think the Chinese government necessarily even respects when the U.S. You know, sort of backs up and backs up again when the Chinese um, government challenges the U.S. position on something. Um, you, know, you can state your position. Um, again, I think both sides are very pragmatic. Hillary Clinton is very pragmatic, and there probably would, will be ways to work through issues. That said, um, you know, China's facing, the Chinese government, China's leaders are facing a number of challenges at the moment. The economy is slowing down. There are structural problems that need to be worked through. And there's always been speculation for as long as I've been covering China, you know, going right back to the mid-90s, um, you know, what happens if, you know, there's a crisis at home, uh, the population becomes more restive in ways that the government doesn't feel it can easily control, is that the point at which you know, it, it is able to um, unify nationalistic sentiment behind it and do something like strike out in the South China Sea? It used to be that you know, the, the fear was that this would be focused on Taiwan. Now it would be more likely the South China Sea. So that's kind of a variable to watch. Um, we're going to get to audience Q&A pretty soon, so I don't want to take too much time, but I have kind of a three-part question uh, for the two of you. <laughs> so the first part is, uh, there was an article about the Hague Tribunal ruling, I can't remember exactly who wrote it right now, um, which suggested, you know, um, cited Swinzer's Art of War, where one of the strategies is you don't want to leave your enemy with absolutely no way to retreat, because that's when they'll get really mad and there's going to be a problem. You've got to leave them with a little bit of space to retreat. Should the U.S. bear that in mind and perhaps be a little less aggressive with FONOPS, you know, in the South China Sea? Second part of the question, a lot of old China hands, and I, I myself am possibly one of them, and there are a bunch of others uh, who you read about if you read about China, and I won't name any names now, who over the last four or five years, particularly since the... Uh, beginning of Xi Jinping's tenure, have become a lot more gloomy about China. People who just five years ago were much more positive about U.S.-China relations, particularly who have become a lot more kind of negative and a lot more willing to say, well, you know what, let's just show those commies a lesson and be done with it and engagement has failed. And This is a very common theme I, I've heard in China-watching circles. So... Um, um, you know, what, what would your response to that be? Um, I think let's just end it at two parts, otherwise this question will be too <laughs> complicated. I thought I was getting senile. I missed the third part. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's, I have very bad arithmetic. Yeah. I didn't go to grade school in China. Uh, well, to answer your, your first question and your third question, I, I, uh, <laughs> I would actually, uh, under, even under that, under that logic, which, which I assume was a direct quote from Sunza, um, the, uh, I, would, I would advise the U.S. to actually conduct more, much more, um, in, the, in terms of freedom of navigation operations. I, I think it should become routine. 
uh, in the South China Sea. And then you, could, you can talk about ratcheting them, den, ratcheting them down or ratcheting them back. Uh, and China doesn't have to make a big deal out of every, every single operation. Um, they don't have to decide that it's worthy of a confrontation. Uh, I, think, uh, I think the U.S. has, if, if, if they've made any mistakes, if the administration has made any mistakes in the last couple of years, I think it's, it's been a bit, a, be, a bit too shy uh, about doing freedom, freedom of navigation operations and making them more uh, normal. They should, they, should, they should make them more normalized. That's on the first question. That's, I don't know if Mary Kay wants to add on that. What was the second question again? <laughs> About whether we're... we're oh, I, the I commies, we're, the commies. Exactly. Yeah. Old China uh, watches who used to be very friendly towards the People's Republic are now finding it much more difficult to encourage engagement. Right, this new hawkishness, which I, is actually, you know, is it, are we becoming part of the problem? Are we encouraging uh, some rather unsavory characters within the Beltway by now agreeing with them? <coughs> Gordon Chang. <coughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that anyone is agreeing with <coughs> Gordon Chang, but I, I do think... I would I would kind of flip that around and say that maybe uh, the people who uh, were optimistic uh, were slightly disillusioned about what they could get in really in terms of cooperation between the chi- China and the U.S. and they become more realistic. Uh, in that sense, that maybe is a little bit gloomy. But I've never been particularly optimistic about uh, about how much could come out of the U.S.-China relationship in terms of uh, areas of cooperation. I, th- I always thought they would be somewhat limited to where they were most sort of pragmatic common interests that were quite clear. You know, one could argue that almost everything is a common interest uh, for them to be partners. And that's certainly the message that the administration uh, conveys, and it's even one that the Chinese foreign ministry uh, conveys. But when it gets down to it, I've, I've always felt that there would be there there's a lot of issues w- that would be quite intractable. Uh, and, and, and I would also suggest that behind the scenes, there might be issues that seem intractable, uh, like cyber, uh, like hacking, that where there maybe is a little bit of uh, progress that you don't hear about. So I'm not entirely gloomy. Uh, I think, though, I'm just, I, I would say the mood now is much more realistic uh, from the camp of, of those who would have suggested five or six years ago, we have a lot of room to work here. Maybe it's sampling error or something, but uh, doesn't it seem to you, Jeremy, that in the weeks since we've relaunched this podcast under sub-China auspices, that many of the people who, to whom we've spoken are more dovish, have more sunny and maybe more optimistic uh, takes on things than, uh, than, than our dear Mr. Epstein today has, has shown. I mean, for example, we, we, who are we talking We talked to Steve Orleans of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. <laughs> maybe it's not surprising that he is. But, um, Lyle Goldstein at the U.S. Naval uh, College. Right, the U.S. Naval uh, War College, who actually, College, yeah. you know, I mean, is... is Calling for, uh, you know, granting spheres of influence and actually retreating from and uh, meeting China halfway. This is the title of his book, and a forthcoming podcast will roll that out quite in, in, in some detail. Uh, what? So I guess I guess I guess my question is. Uh, I mean, we also have Cheng Li from from the Brookings Institution, who actually says that we're overestimating. Uh, Xi Jinping's hold on power, that it actually still is a more collective leadership than we imagine that he has constraints from, from factional foes and things like, uh, like that. Um, so, are, I mean, are any of these voices being heard inside the Beltway? Because it seems to me like the, the, the kind of hawkish, more uh, hard posture drumbeat is louder and louder. Uh, I'm uh, not inside the Beltway, but... No. Uh, I, I, Thank God. <laughs> I, I guess I would tend to, t- 
to disagree that that's, a, that's necessarily a hawkish position. Like I said, I, I just think it's realistic to see China for being, uh, for seeing the current regime for being what it is, which is, as I said earlier, opportunistic but also pragmatic. So when you do push back, which is not necessarily hawkish, it's just sort of standing your ground for, your, for, your regions, for the region's interests or for your partner's interests, then you sometimes see uh, a little bit of pullback on the other side. And I think that's, that's a pragmatic approach. Yeah, and I'd just also add that um, it stands to reason that an existing power isn't necessarily going to voluntarily give up power without needing to, particularly when others in the region are saying, we see a role for you here. Um, so while I've heard the argument of, you know, the U.S. should cede spheres of influence and just <clears throat> allow China to expand, allow China to rise, um, there are others in the region who are saying, yeah, no, don't do that. Um, we see a role for each of you here, and we think the region will be more stable for having each of you here, at least for the foreseeable future. Well, I, I think it's time for us to open the floor to questions, but first I want to give a big thank you and hear a warm round of applause for Mary Kay Magistad and for Gotti Epstein. <laughs> And to the good folks here at the Little Park and the Smith Hotel for this great space, I want to remind everyone before we start questions uh, that our that the Cynica podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SupChina News. Now, please, uh, when you come up to the mic, please give us your name and the organization you're with if you want and try to keep your questions nice and tight. Come on up, Mabel, why don't you come on up. Take that microphone off the stool and speak. Hi, I'm Mabel Chan um, with China Personified. Great to see everybody. Um, I have a question for everyone here at this panel. Um, you've spent so much time in China and you're now here in America. So my question is, what is the single biggest misconception about China that you hear from your friends, from your neighbors in your community. How do you address that? And how does that misconception inform or guide the focus and direction of your work? Mary Kay, why don't you take a crack at that one? Okay. I think misconceptions about China change over time. And, um, you know, just picking different eras during which I was in China. In the mid-'90s, I think a lot of people felt... You know, there, there was, the, you know, the Tiananmen massacre was still at the forefront of many people's minds. And so even as China's economy was taking off and even as a space was opening up for more people to be able to express themselves more freely and then the Internet got going, I think there was still, you know, a leg in, in public perception in the U.S. I actually, I used to live in England as well, and when I would visit my friends in England, they had a much greater leg. I mean, they seem to be thinking of China as still being in the Cultural Revolution, you know, gray suits and bicycles, and it really was astounding to me that, you know, there was even so much of a difference in perception between the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and then, you know, leading up to the Olympics, and particularly after the Olympics, after that opening ceremony, for years it was, you know, China, they're going to eat our lunch. I mean, you know, they're already ahead of us. The Chinese economy is bigger than the U.S. economy. Um, these days, I... I think maybe it's turning back. I think maybe it's it's not turning back to um, the the Tiananmen narrative, but just that you know the, of the government being more oppressive. And so there there's fear and anxiety um, about okay, so it's a big economy and it's becoming 
less open than it used to be. So how does that affect that's us? That's not a misperception, though, is it's, it? Well, that's not a, it's not a misperception. No, it's not a misperception, but it's, um, there are a lot of, you know, look, there are always a lot of different data points about anything, and you can bring them together to make a narrative. And we all know from the time we spent in China, and many of you here know from the time you spent in China, that many things and its opposite are true at the same time in China. And that, you know, even as the government cracks down more, you have a young generation that's better connected, better traveled, more sophisticated, more connected with the rest of the world, more agile in figuring out how to use modern technology, you know, emerging technologies to make really interesting new businesses and um, cooperations of various types. All of this is true at the same time. And, you know, in the long term, I actually am kind of optimistic about what that generation is going to do in China and in the world. And so, I mean, in my personal reporting, I focus on that as well as on, you know, what the, what the government's policies are and the effect that they're having. I think both are important. And so you try to present as full a picture as you can, recognizing that you're never going to get the whole thing. Adi, did you want to add anything, or should we take? Yeah, I, I could. Well, I, I used to ask this question when I would speak uh, to groups of like students visiting China from America. What, you know, what is your, what was your perception before arriving here, and you know, what did you learn might be, you know, what might be different? And I was surprised as recently as four or five years ago, uh, there was great surprise that there was so much kind of wealth and development in China's cities, <laughs> which I thought, you know, that's a very, very much a lagging, uh, you know, kind of a lagging perception. Uh, whereas I think that's probably flipped around now. Uh, I think that image of Chinese wealth, uh, cons conspicuous consumerism abroad, um, has probably undersold to, uh, to your average kind of consumer of news about China, how much, uh, how much poverty and malnutrition and absolutely, uh, absolutely. still remains in China. Uh, so I think that's where things have flipped. If I may just add very briefly before we take the next question, my biggest worry in the United States is that a lot of Americans aren't engaged enough with global news in any way at all. Um, and that's what I, I, I think our mission with this podcast and at SubChina is part of trying to remedy the situation is to get people interested in other countries. Um, that's what I fear the most when I turn on the TV here. Uh, they're getting plenty of plenty of news about China from Trump, <laughs> so yeah, we're fine on a, that. There's a lag there too. <laughs> plenty of opinions about China. Okay, we, let's take our next questions. Uh, great. My name's Nancy Yao Mosbach. I'm the president of the Museum of Chinese in America. Thank you for your earlier comments. My question is about the evolution of the China hand. So when China, after Gaiga Kaifeng, China opening, the China hand, and actually during before that time even, the China hand was very distinct. It was someone who studied Chinese language, who was not necessarily of Chinese ancestry, was an individual who studied China. We've seen that really evolve over time, where there are many disciplines, where we are many China hands over time. And actually, many, uh, quite often, the invisible group within that China hand population is really the uh, Chinese who is traveling back and forth, uh, the individuals who have uh, taking advantage and leverage the porous boundaries between being both a China citizen and a U.S. American U.S. citizen and going back and forth. I'm wondering, could you comment a bit about though the role of those individuals in bridging U.S.-China relations? Um, will it evolve in your prediction over time? What role do they play now? 
and how will that evolve? Because I think they play such a fundamental and crucial role, this uh, diaspora. Well, I mean, they're pointing at me because I, th I suppose they imagine that I am one of those people. <laughs> Uh, and I, no, I, I suppose I, I like to think that I, I, I do represent that in some way, somebody who, is, who has a certain cultural fluency in both, both countries and a comfort level in both countries and both cultures. Uh, I think there's an enormously important role to play. I think that, that uh, it, it's, it's quite natural. It's, it's as you imagine it to be. It's quite intuitive the, that these are people who uh, are very useful translators of these things. I mean... I think we have to find what strengths that we have. I, I don't find that I'm a particularly good interpreter of things American uh, for Chinese audiences, and I think that's partially just a limitation of my own Chinese language ability. Uh, but the other way around, I, I, f I feel like I do get a little bit of traction, and that's part of what this show is about, uh, being able to, uh, to help people to uh, a broader context, a little more reflection on how their own ideas about uh, history affect the, the way they think about other countries and especially China. Uh, I think that, that our role is, is, uh, is it's challenged in a way though. Uh, we need, I, I know personally, I'm, I'm constantly having my, my sort of loyalties uh, questioned. I mean, am I an apologist for uh, the, 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 the Chinese Communist Party in some way? Uh, or am I, you know, I, I hear it from the other side as well. Am I, you know, uh, some you know, nefarious agent of peaceful evolution working, you know, to athwart the... the I mean, and I, I've always kind of believed that if I'm, if I'm taking it from both sides, I'm probably doing it right. You're probably both of those, right, Kaiser? Right, I'm both. Okay. I'm a double agent, actually, working for both of So you're getting a, a checks from the NDA and, and the... NED. Uh, uh, I mean, sorry, the NED and, right. and the Communist Party. Get, get my employer. Yeah. But you signed several NDAs. <laughs> right. NDAs with the NED. Right. <laughs> Just one other thought. I mean... When, when China hands were playing such a critical role early on, there were f relatively few of them, right? Relatively few Americans who spoke fluent Chinese really understood Chinese history and culture. And there wasn't a lot of traffic back and forth between China and the United States. There's much, much, much more now. And if you think about it, I mean, we don't talk about there being an, you know, an England hand or an India hand or whatever. And maybe we're moving to a sort of a normalization where there are so many different avenues of communication and, you know, people visiting each country, living in each country. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, so there will always be people who are maybe spending more time thinking about long-term trends in history and um, contributing to the conversation but hopefully it's a conversation that's going on at more and more levels among many more people. I think that's very true, because I mean, I think the, the origins of the term China Hand, I mean, they date back to the colonial period, and a China Hand was a specifically white Westerner who had lived in China long enough to understand the inscrutable Orientals. Um, <laughs> so if that's coming to an end, that's probably a, a good thing. I mean, I take great comfort in seeing all this, the, the legions of young Americans now living, studying, working in China uh, who you know, aren't haunted by certain specters of the past and who have come to China without a lot of baggage or assumptions and have excellent language skills and, and the ability. I mean, they aren't necessarily Chinese ethnically. A lot of them aren't, you know, have no, no blood connection whatsoever to China, but uh, their reason for me to have great hope. Next question comes from Dan Washburn of the Asia Society. How are you, man? There you go. I don't have to introduce myself. I, I wanted to um, ask you guys, you all left China relatively recently. Um, how much did the current regime 
play into that decision to leave and what would have to happen for you to um, move back? Let's just go down the line here. For me, not at all. Okay, so yeah, the, the question was uh, how much did the, the sort of repressive uh, nature of, of the Xi Jinping re regime, I don't like to use the word regime, it's sort of a inherently pejorative term, but uh, the, the, the current leadership, how much did that pay, play into our respective decisions to leave? For me, not at all. I've been in China when there were, was much worse political repression. It, I didn't go there to enjoy political freedoms in the first place, okay? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 it, it's, I, I went there because... Come on, admit it. You did. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, okay, okay. You got me, got it. Okay, America, you're up. Uh, so for me, also not at all. I left for personal reasons. Um, I go back to China regularly. I miss China on a regular basis. So um, if it weren't for, I, I moved for a relationship. I'm happily living in San Francisco. Um, if it weren't for that, I might still be in China. I think, you know, China goes through various phases, all of them interesting. And this one is also interesting, just in different ways. All right, I won't use the word regime again. Um, so how did the People's Democratic Dictatorship under Xi Jinping <laughs> influence my thinking? I, actually, in my case, not at all either. I had been planning to leave China probably, I, got, I've been in, I was in China for 12 years, and I had been planning to leave for 11 years. Um, <laughs> and I finally got around to it. I, uh, and actually, in the la I'd, I had, before Xi Jinping even came to power, I'd already arranged that two years... Uh, later, or several, sorry, several years later at that point, um, I would be leaving China. It just, uh, you know, and I happened to nail it down. Um, but, uh, but no, I think the rise of a repressive, a more repressive um, uh, People's Democratic Dictatorship under Xi Jinping uh, did, actually is interesting to reporters, right? So I, I don't think, I think if you're a journalist at, at heart, that's not the kind of thing that makes you want to leave. Now, there might be other factors, personal life, um, and also, you know, health. Um, you know, there there is a pollution issue in Beijing, uh, and that certainly factored. That did sort of factor in towards the end of my 11-year plan. Um, yeah, I I mean, there were a lot of factors for me, but uh, my daughter had pneumonia and bronchitis and other respiratory infections about like eight months straight in Beijing, and that was basically the the the, the trigger. Um, also, my wife is a musician who wanted to move to Nashville, Tennessee. So, you know, <laughs> I didn't really have a choice. <laughs> Great. Okay. So, no, 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 and no. Okay. Well, then I want to, uh, to, to, to thank you all for, for uh, coming tonight and remind you that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo, myself, and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks to, of course, our dear leader, An La Cheng, who's standing next to me right now, uh, at drop us an email at Sinica at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sinica podcast and follow us and, of course, SubChina on Twitter. We are at Sinica podcast and they are at SubChina news. So thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it and uh, we look forward to drinking with you guys now. <laughs>